0: Listeners and welcome back to the Asial podcast. And uh, we are talking once again security pre- security procurement, but this time we are looking at it from the provider's perspective. Uh, if for those of you who listened to our former podcast, it was all about procurement more from a, a compliance perspective. But today we have with us Chris Delaney from Asial, the industrial relations advisor. Chris, how are you? I'm well, thank you. We have Joe Painter from Painter Security. Joe, how are you?
1: I'm very well,
2: thank you. And-
0: And we have Lenny Ison, Executive Manager at ACES. How are you, Lenny? Well, thank you. And you have me, lucky you, uh, John Bigelow from Security Solutions Magazine. So guys, let me kick this off. Security procurement is an interesting subject and one that can be a bit of a, a prickly pear in this industry because everyone's always trying to get it cheaper, get it cheaper, get it cheaper. From a a provider's perspective, do you think there is a disconnect between price makers and price takers as to the value of security? And who wants to kick this off? Don't overwhelm me all at once. Joe, I'm going to throw to you.
1: There's always going to be a disconnect because of the, the simple fact is they want to pay the least amount possible but want the most incredible service. Um, we don't want any incidents, but we want to pay the least amount and have somebody on site relative to the cost they're prepared to pay. So, whenever want... you're prepared yeah. to pay the lowest amount, you're not going to have somebody on site
0: 24-7. You mean you can't get champagne for a beer budget?
1: Well, I have heard that and I'm actually convinced it's true.
0: (laughs) Okay. Lenny?
2: Well, I think there's an interesting proposition around the, the question you raised of the value of security. I don't necessarily think that there's a disconnect around the value, but there's definitely a disconnect around the price. Um, So they value the service um, more so when something's gone wrong, Um, and I think everyone shares in that value discussion, Um, but there's a huge disconnect between the price they're prepared to pay um, for that valued service and what it should be um, to deliver a compliance solution. Um, I think increasingly... uh, the, the the market has become um, so far skewed away from what the price should be to deliver an optimum quality service that returns that value and what the client believes is a fair and reasonable price to pay.
0: Okay. But um, uh, uh, be, before we move on, I'm going to throw a wrench into the conversation here a little bit because I think there's two parts to this discussion. I hear what you're saying around the value of security – Um, as opposed to the price of security. But it seems to me there's two aspects. First of all, there's what the market is willing to pay, and obviously procurement departments are always trying to drive that down. But it also seems to me that there are a lot of security companies out there from small to large who don't understand how to structure a value proposition and think that the only way they can compete is on price and thereby end up just driving the whole thing into a price war. We all know that, and this comes back to a point that Chris and I had a discussion about earlier, and Chris, you can jump in any time here, but we understand that the thinking around security used to be that it was a grudge purchase. You know, it's something I have to buy because I need it, because it's a compliance Mm. issue. But there's plenty of ways that you can sell security from a cost value adding perspective. In other words my security company can bring all sorts of value to your organisation. And if you base your value proposition around that as opposed to we're the cheapest, we're the cheapest, surely we can start to change the tone of the argument.
3: Yeah, yeah. look, I will jump in there. Um, sorry, Joe. <laughs> uh, look, part of what Lenny said earlier is is really important. And that is when, when the user, when the buyer... Uh, Looks at the service. They very often look at what they think the think the market rate is, and from all of the discussions I have with many members, um, it seems that the market rate is skewed. And what the what the uh, what the user what the client feels is the real market rate is not a market rate that's based on uh, the professional reality of providing a security service. They might, they might be looking at it from the point of view of all of the cheapest rates that they've seen and decide that that's the market rate. So I think it's a matter of educating the client to understand what the market rate ought to be for a good professional service rather than what they think it is based on what they see out there Perhaps from shonkies and 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 uh, low grade service providers. Joe, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I would to an extent, sorry, Lenny, disagree in regards to the value of the service. In that it depends particularly on the the part of the industry that we're we're talking about, but. The amount of occasions that I've heard licensees say we've got to have this many guards um, or crowd controllers to work at our venue, they see no value in what they're doing. It's just that they've been told, I must have 15 guards, so I will have 15 guards, or local government that has been told that they've got to get somebody to move their cash on their behalf. Well, nothing's ever gone wrong, so why do we need security? And when you say about explaining to people the value of a service, how it's... They don't see that it's a necessary thing. I mean, obviously, we've seen the unfortunate side of the industry and what can go wrong. So we know the benefit and how to explain that to a client. But unless they understand it themselves, how do you convince them to do it? And that's perhaps where this price um, situation comes in, that they want it because they've got to have it, not because they think they need it.
0: Okay, but let me play devil's advocate here for a second, Joe. Is it not partly incumbent upon organisations like yours who provide the security to some of these venues to once you're actually in the job and running the contract, do what you can to try and change the perceptions? For example, if in the past, um, they've simply had a provider there filling shirts and hanging numbers around neck to make out numbers, they will have a certain experience of, of what security is. But then if you come in and you've got people Walking the line out the front of the pub, picking the troublemakers before they even get to the front door and saying to them, here's a drink card, come back next week, you're not getting in tonight. Or you've got, you know, I don't know, let's take an example. If you've gone into the city and found a busker who's going to come down and entertain the crowds out the front of the club so they don't get bored while they're waiting to get in and providing all of these sorts of things that make the club understand that, wow, we've got way less violence, uh, violence, our attendance numbers are up, we've got way better reviews online on social media, and all we can do is attribute this to the change in security, then after a period of time, and maybe I'm living in a dream world here, but after a period of time, won't the club start to realise there's more to security than just price? These guys are actually improving our bottom line.
1: Absolutely. But, I mean, we're related to something that most people understand. We've just had a federal election. How many people voted for a party just because that's what they do? They're yeah. convinced that that's what they need to do. So that's what we're going to do, irrespective of what we know, what we're educated, what somebody tries to explain to us, because that's what we do.
0: But most people in and, the security industry are much more likeable than anyone in the election. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Maybe we
1: should all run for
3: parliament. Um
1: but it's some people have just got that and unfortunately, I mean, we um, no longer do pubs and clubs. We have, had our, we have done our time in that and I'm aware of what it, it, it's like, but there is a certain amount of people out there that you can value add, you can educate, you can explain, you can do everything possible, but they see because it is a number on a page given to them by a man in a blue uniform, how do you change their mind? And that's perhaps one of the hardest parts
0: any
2: look i i n- don't, we, d- we don't operate in that space um, so I, I guess from my perspective I can't comment and I can't contradict that because I, I definitely believe that um, large segments of the industry have moved beyond um, not understanding the value of security. I think the change in the threat context um, overall um, and in in the last three to five years has, has moved a lot of people on towards really understanding um, that that security is a precautionary measure and one that um, a, a a sustainable Um, organisation would indeed undertake. Um, Coming back, though, to Chris's point, um, I think that the buyer's perspective of what they think the price point is is more than a thought it is actually the price point that the industry is presenting to to clients um, and that's the unfortunate issue Um, i continue to believe that uh, the low uh, prices in the industry are driven by industry and unless that can change it's going to be very difficult to reset um, the, the price the best way to do it i believe is Uh, through an education campaign. We really need to improve as an industry and as um, an industry association to create a framework that clearly demonstrates to buyers what is a sustainable price and what should be for an organisation to um, be able to deliver that service in a transparent manner and meeting all their legal obligations as a business and as an employer. I know there's been some attempts to do that, but clearly um, it still not has penetrated to the level it needs to, so people can look and go, well, if it's below that, clearly it is not a sustainable price and I should not be involved in that. Chris, I I, I know this is something
0: that you're going to jump in on, but (laughs) but let me just ask first, though, does that not – and I'm asking this from an outsider's perspective to a degree – does that not already exist to some degree? Because there's a minimum wage that we have to pay – There are minimum entitlements that have to be met. There are uniform costs that are pretty standardised across the board. I mean, surely there's got to be a base rate, and this is I'll get you to jump in here, Chris, but surely there's got to be a provable base rate at some level at which people, anyone, Blind Freddy can point at and go, if they're providing you that service at that dollar rate per hour, there is no way they are meeting their legal obligations. Go for it, Chris.
3: I totally agree with Lenny, um, and we discussed in the last podcast yep. um, the fact that we'd been to the Fair Work Ombudsman and we went through all of that bit with the, uh, uh, with the um, Trade Practices Act and whether or not we could sort of put a price on, on security. I think Lenny's point, though, is valid. We have had a go at it. We've tried it. We've got to continue to try it. We've got to work out how we can get that message through to the people who use security services. Now, I'm going to digress slightly because Joe was talking about pubs and clubs and Lenny doesn't work in that space. I think we would all recognise that the security industry is incredibly diverse and its customer base is incredibly diverse. And there will be people who have the right value for the service and, the, and there are those that don't have the right value. We've got to work out how we get to those people who don't have the right value for the service. We've got to work out a way to provide the professionalism as an association, provide the professionalism and the support to our membership so that they can demand that their clients understand you know, the right price for their, their product or their service. and. I think it's it's a conversation that's worth worth having yep uh, and continuing to have and and looking at better ways of doing it I think it was Einstein who said if you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result then you're crazy and yeah you know, maybe people like me have been doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result you know I said to somebody a few weeks ago you know I didn't get a face like this uh, by not bashing my head up against a brick wall and I've been bashing it up there for quite a while. Maybe there's, maybe we can do some things differently and Joe, we should look at that.
0: I, I mean, you you come up against this every day in what you do. Um, am I unrealistic in believing that there's there's got to be sort of, you know, a base that we can point to that says, look, this low and no lower. Surely if you're going below this, then you're just being ridiculous.
3: Oh, look, I can tell you that number right now. If, yeah. if you know you're supplying a 24-7 service... To a client uh, with security guards around the clock uh, at a level one, for instance, you could not be doing it without paying them at least thirty odd bucks an hour, so throw in ten uh thirty percent on costs on top of that if you're charging your client less than forty something dollars an hour, you can't be making a profit it's you know but I can tell you the number of times I say that to somebody. Yeah. Sorry, Joe, go Lenny's, ahead. Lenny's pretty keen here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the number of times I say that to somebody who's on the phone and trying to run a security company and they say to me, I couldn't possibly get that amount of money out of the client. Yeah.
0: Okay, so, Joe, you, I know you're dying to respond. Go for it.
1: You know, I, um, I was... afforded afforded the opportunity of providing um, a quote to to a client. And with this, because I believe that this particular client was solely a price-driven situation um, or potential client, sorry. So a large um, number of patrol sites included the costing, the number of minutes per site involved. And on this occasion, I actually included the complete spreadsheet of the award wages, work cover, superannuation, long all of the on costs, the cost of fuel, um, everything like that included the bottom line of how much money we would potentially make out of this and everything like that. And they actually awarded the contract to a company whose rate was less than what it was going to cost us to do. Now, when you've got people like that who are given the actual numbers, there was no... I thought to myself, yep, let's just give them all the secrets, gave them everything that we used to formulate our our tender, and they went with somebody that cost... The actual, um, inc- the actual tender price was less than what it was going to cost to do it. Now, when you've got a, a company that's prepared to do that, it does make it very hard, and when I... I actually asked them what was the situation they said well it's not up to us whether they choose to make money or lose money
0: oh but my understanding is and and Lenny perhaps this is something you can comment on I mean my understanding is there are legal boundaries around what they can and can't do as far as that's concerned or maybe that's a question for Chris but yeah
2: so I, I guess um Joe, we've Always provide that same transparency. We cost all of our um, procurement responses um, in in accordance with their obligations and show um, every one of those additional uh, legal employment costs and margins for overheads, um, including profit, so that it is obvious where the money is going. And I agree with you. It is often disregarded and there is often occasions where it is clearly awarded to someone who has priced it below the legal cost of goods sold. Um, and it is quite typical to be advised that it is not up to the buyer to to determine nor to care whether a company chooses to make a profit or not. Um, In terms of the legality of that, um, of course there's um, (laughs) a particular section of the Fair Work Act that is endeavouring to change that procurement practice Um, and it is getting some penetration. Um, People are well aware of the fact that they can be personally held accountable for procurement decisions but there is definitely a a long way to go. In terms of coming back to um, John's point around surely there is a transparent uh, methodology for determining what is a sustainable price, there is. Um, but I think we need to push it further, and push it further than ASIO has done historically, um, to consider the factors that might buy into that. Because there's small businesses that don't have some of those overheads. There's medium and large that have different models. But there is a really strong base. We, we operate in an industry that has, you know, a, a regulated or a published rate for workers' comp. Um, all of the other costs should be level and equivalent. But what I'm stunned to discover in, in terms of procurement responses, including to some really large organisations in across all elements of business that should know better, and are trying really hard to get it right, but they structure a spreadsheet to drive that response to prove compliance, and they get that wrong. So a large one that I responded to very recently, who had um, miscalculated uh, the application of superannuation uh, to payroll tax to wages and superannuation. That makes a significant difference, so when you've got large buyers who have robust um, procurement teams who still cannot get the fundamentals of employment from a supplier's perspective right in their price schedules, there's not much hope for us to prove the right way. So I think there is an avenue to be able to say this is what it should look like and this is the way it's calculated because I know it might sound like, you know, pricing for dummies, but really it is frequently so badly done, even when people are trying to do the right thing, that there is still, you know, an area of um, improvement that I think industry can help drive um, through, um, you know, uh, industry groups.
0: So, Chris, let me bring you in here because, I mean, it seems to me – If I'm walking down the street and some guy pulls up in a white van and opens the doors and has a lovely set of speakers there and says, would you like to buy these speakers? And my response is, well, Mr Constable, it's not my responsibility to know where the speakers came from. I was just offered speakers at a cheap price and I thought that was reasonable. It's no defence. Ignorance is no defence in the eyes of the law. Why is it any different when we're employing people? Well, it's
3: not. It's not. Um, In terms of... Uh, accessorial liability, uh, Lenny touched on it, section 550 of the Fair Work Act. an individual or an organization uh, can be uh, joined to an action against uh, an employer if they knew or should reasonably have known uh, that there would be a breach. And the aspect that we look at for the most part in that is you know if, if the number is less than X, Then it doesn't pass the sniff test. It doesn't smell right, so it probably isn't. And that's where the procurement manager should be saying, "Well, you know, I've got to have another look at this." Now, I think uh, Lenny also said um, that there are different different uh, business models throughout the industry because of the size of an organisation or what it does, and so on. And that there are procurement people out there who don't even get their own models right. and she said that ASIL could do more, and I, I agree with her. ASIL probably could do more. I'm not exactly sure what we could do better um, or how we could structure something that, that could go to, um, uh, go to a procurement manager or so on to, to get them to get their stuff right because I'm not sure that they'd really listen to us anyway. But it's worth a try and I'd be happy to sit down with Lenny or anybody else, uh, or not me, probably some of the the higher echelons of ASIAL. I'm I'm just the IR dude. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I I think it's worth exploring. And, uh, you know, whatever way we can get to to uh, have uh, the value of our service and the value of our uh, members uh, lifted... I think we should we should try anything we can, quite frankly.
0: But surely the industry has the right and has an expectation of an association like ASIAL that if in Joe's case, and I'll I'll let you jump in here in a second, Joe, but if Joe is up in a, a tender process against Lenny and Joe has a, a reasonable suspicion that, you know, Lenny's underpricing or whatever it may be, or that someone else is underpricing is there a reporting structure or mechanism whereby joe can turn around to you chris as the as the industry peak body and say hey listen these guys are playing funny buggers over here you know and then you have the ability to to either report upwards to government or do, like is that does that exist could it exist
3: i'm not sure that the example you give is is the best one okay uh, for that we, we certainly Can't have Sorry, we we certainly have a situation where uh, an a member can make a complaint about another member, uh, uh, an external organisation can make a complaint about another member, uh, a uh, you know a, a user can make a complaint. Whether we would get involved in um, a competitive tender and take sides one one business against another without some very very good Intel. Even if I think it was that, that clearly
0: demonstrable that company C was doing, you know, based on their numbers was really, and I'm just asking the question here, I don't know, if it was clearly demonstrable that it's like, well, really show cause, how can you possibly be meeting your legal obligations on those numbers?
2: I think that would put the industry association in a, in a, a compromise position. So, so I agree with your hesitation there and it wasn't where I was going with that conversation. Um, look, you know, regulation is a difficult thing and there are other agencies that are supposed to be involved in the regulation. Um, um, and you know, the, the, the current uh, newsworthy noise um, around some of the transformation of, of the Fair Work um, Ombudsman to become more of a regulatory body rather than advisory body, which is in this week's news, yep. I think um, I- is an action that really needs to happen and I would say probably the same needs to happen with some of our other industry regulators. Um, to help us get to a better position. Um, The the point I was making around publicising what... um, um, is the right price point is just about showing a guide for what the facts are. Um, so here's the current award rates. Um, here is the, the industry statistics for workers comp. This is what the current um, superannuable rate is right. and that's what your cost of goods sold starts at. Overhead margins then become a discussion beyond there. And I know that should be normal and common sense but clearly it's not. Um, and so just showing a calculation and when I was talking about different types of organisations, obviously there's different thresholds for payroll sac- tra- tax and Employment that need to be factored in, so there would be a couple of different models based on on the respondent. But that that way, it's just providing a really open and transparent guideline to say, well, if it's below this, as you, in your words, yep. does it pass the smell test? No. Um, and and it's it's fine for us to do that as a respondent to a tender, but it's a very different position and perspective if it comes from an association that says, well, this is what it is. Yeah. Well,
0: Joe, jo, your just, thoughts? Just, oh, just, sorry. Go on, Chris. Yeah,
3: just to go on with that. Uh, we we do provide to our members letters that they can use to, to put to with their tender. Uh, I, I talked earlier yeah. in the last session about the, what we call a client kit, um, and that client kit talks about things like section five five zero, talks about things like you know uh, pricing and so on. We've had to be extremely careful not to breach the trade practices act with setting prices. Extremely careful, and we spent six months uh, with legal opinion through uh, FWO, the Fair Work Ombudsman, and so on. When we originally did that back in the days of Natalie James, and I think it, in those days we had a a very low number, which was you know somewhere around the twenty-seven, twenty-eight dollar mark. Um, but it, it, again, it's worth exploring how we might be able to do that better, and I think we should. Yeah, sorry, Joe, go on.
1: But it still comes back to, is it ASIAL's responsibility to tell somebody how to do their job?
0: No, would be my guess.
3: Or, or so, pri- well, it, no, it's not ASIAL's responsibility to tell you how to do your job. But it's ASIAL's responsibility, I believe, to provide you with every piece of information that's reasonably possible to allow you to do your job to the best professional level possible. So we should be providing those services that will allow you to understand how to do your job to a professional level. So I think that's our job.
0: Let me ask this question then, though. We keep sort of dancing around this in the discussion around, um, you know, making sure people are paying the right amount and all the rest of it. And you've pointed this out a couple of times, as have other people. You know, we've got to be very careful of price setting. Why? What's wrong with setting a minimum price for services within an industry? There are other industries that do it, uh, where they say, let's take, uh, and I don't know for a fact, but let's take something like psychology, for example, where, you know, the Australian Psychological Society, is my understanding, got together and said, okay, here is a minimum hourly rate that anyone will have to pay to go and see a psychologist. What is wrong with setting a minimum rate if everyone has to play by that rule?
3: We're not allowed to set prices under the Trade Practices Act. It's as simple as that. What what the psychiatrists do or other medicos yep. do, there might be some legislation that allows them to set some kind of minimum price or maximum price or or whatever. I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, that's not my area of expertise. But I, I, I know for a fact that we cannot go out into the marketplace and say, this is the price. We can go out to the marketplace and do what we did before, which is to say anything lower than this doesn't pass the sniff test. Yep. So you need to have a darn good look at it. But
0: but for fear of of digressing too much here, I know we're not allowed to under the current legislation, but is this something that should be lobbied for? Is it? Is there a case to argue that, well, if we know that these are the minimum costs, why can't we say anything should begin here. Why can't we petition government to say it should be here that we start from and then it goes up from there. If I can demonstrate value beyond that minimum price, then it's up to me to get the client to wanna to pay that amount. But we know to pre- we can prevent all of these problems or a huge number of these problems by just saying it starts here and no lower.
3: Is that a recommended retail price for instance? Yeah.
2: So, look, I wasn't um, you know, <laughs> advocating for, for, for the Trade Practices Act and, and you know, it, it's it's beyond me in terms of the detail on it, but it is um, a fairly robust piece of legislation that I think we'd find difficult to challenge. Um, my, uh, my focus was on um, making sure that there's a clear, transparent for the legal and sustainable cost of employment um, for the labour sector of the security industry because the buyers clearly um, um, either don't know it or are choosing to ignore it. So if there's something that makes it harder for them to to ignore it, I think that's to the benefit of industry overall.
3: Yeah. yeah. Uh, look, I think uh, uh, Peter Strong from Cosboa made uh, a comment in the last session, and that was we can't tell people not to make a profit. Yep. <laughs> um, and if somebody wants to go in at uh, you know a, a loss, um, a loss offer, uh, what do you call it? Lost loss lead. Loss lead. Sorry, yep. my brain's <coughs> starting to get scrambled slightly. Uh, if they want to go into the a lost lead, then there's not a lot you can do about that. But um, we know that most of these are not lost leads. <laughs>
0: yeah. But, jo- okay, Joe. let me come back to you. You deal with this all the time, running a security business. I mean, how do you believe that we can improve procurement practices? What needs to be done to change the way this is all happening, in your opinion?
1: I think Lenny just before made a comment that it's... How do you make it harder to ignore it Um, so that the end user is aware of it and their obligations in relation to you would like a a level of service? There is a level of price associated with it. And making sure that they're educated on perhaps repercussions of it under fair work or a standard of service expectation um, to help them make sure that they meet their obligations and in turn get the service that they expect from our industry.
0: Yeah. Chris, to your mind, how many cases have been run so far or do you have an indication of sort of, you know, if there have been cases that have been run where people have been found to be doing the wrong thing from a procurement point of view um, where they should have known better and have they been held accountable for it?
3: In the security industry, probably two. Right. Uh, and they weren't, they weren't very big operators Uh, In that instance, but the people who were prosecuted were the owners and the directors of the security business, not the owners of the client.
0: Yep. So until we see one of these larger companies or a company who's contracting security services, you know, under what is reasonable being prosecuted, then can we honestly expect to see any
3: change? No, I don't think so. Look, we were incredibly disappointed. Uh, I talked in the last session about the local government procurement initiative, which we started with the Fair Work Ombudsman, and uh, it took them two years. They prosecuted quite a number of uh, security companies for failing to pay the right rates of pay, but they didn't prosecute any of the the local government organisations for their procurement practices, even though they found some of them to be wanting. Interestingly, one of our members uh, in Victoria uh, was prosecuted as a result of that. They were a small member. Uh, they were doing in a country town. They were doing taxi stands and uh, and a little bit of local government work, and they took it on the chin. They paid the right rates of pay. They did everything they could, and they went back to their their local government association and their uh, local government uh, organisation, and said we have to pay this. Yep. We can't keep doing this work for you unless you pay us the extra because you're paying us less than what we owe our employees. And the local council said to them, in writing, tough luck, too bad, you signed the contract. When your contract ends, we'll get somebody else to do it, but in the meantime, we'll pay you what what we said we would pay you. Now, we gave that letter to the Fair Work Ombudsman to say, have a look at this organisation. They did not look at it. But from a uh, from an
0: outside perspective, I mean, if they've entered into a tender and they've put forward a tender that says, we can afford to fulfil this contract for X, and then they've halfway through that said, oh, no, we can't do that anymore. I know I'm playing devil's advocate here, but is that really the person who's contracting the service's fault or is that the fault of the organisation who screwed up their tender application?
3: Well, I don't think they screwed up their tender application to start with. Right. I I think they put in a genuine tender that they believed was the right price and they got screwed on price. Right. Now, if you want this work, this is what you're going to do it for. Yep. So I think the power was with with the local council in that instance. But, you know, if we're looking at, what's reasonable and a fair go. And if you just take it from that point in time where the guy says, OK, I've been done by the Fair Work Ombudsman, I've got to put my prices up, and Section 550 says, if you're knowingly involved in a breach, blah, 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 and they say, sorry, we're not interested, that's not ethical. One
0: of the things that, that stands out to me, though, and I'm sure both you, Lenny, and Joe, you've both come up against this before... I, and perhaps you can explain to me how this works because I don't understand this screwy thing that goes on with legacy EBAs where I've, I've heard stories and seen examples of security companies buying other security companies because they've got ridiculous EBAs in place that have existed for years that enable them to deliver at a service at a price that's significantly lower than they're currently able to deliver it because the EBA allows them to pay less than they were previously, how does this work? How is this even possible? Well,
3: that's not lawful. For a start, the EBA, we call them zombie EBA's. I think that's the common term. Uh, they're past their their term, um, and they they stay in place until they're buried and rescinded. That part of it's lawful. Nothing wrong with that. But you can't buy a company and use that EBA for any other employees other than those ones that are in that particular company. But it
0: happens. I mean, Joe, have you seen examples of this?
1: I'm aware of examples of this, yes, but we intentionally have nothing to do with EBAs with our um business in that we sure. just go with the award because that way we can ensure that the staff there's a complete transparency you get what you're supposed to get there's no confusions there's no grey hiding or anything like that so um yes i do know of companies that are, are doing that i know of one that has changed hands and unfortunately chris they are paying um under the as you refer to it zombie eba
3: well uh their employees can go to the Fair Work Ombudsman and complain that they're underpaid wages. There was a significant... Hang, um, on, hang on,
0: just before you move on from that though, would their employees know that they can do that? And if so, how would their employees know that they can do that?
3: Well, I don't um, know how you know, they would know. Yeah. It, yeah. If they are a member of a yeah, union, right. they might know.
0: Is that something that, if, uh, and I'm just asking the question here, is that something that ASIAL sort of promotes to the industry to, or is that more a union
3: thing? Well. We look after our members and we would tell our members that they're doing the wrong thing. And I was, I, was, I was about to say there was a significant case in the ACT where exactly that happened, where the company took over another company that had an EBA and then they started filing their employees into that. Mm. They were taken to court, they were prosecuted and they were severely fined. Now... I don't think every employee is going to know about what their rights and responsibilities are, you know, the responsibilities of their employer. Uh, But if you want to know, you can find out pretty easily. These are not significant areas of law that, you know, only the higher echelons of the legal profession understand. The Fair Work Ombudsman's website is significant in what it it, uh, provides to employees or anybody else who wants to look it up. Uh, organisations like ASIAL can help employers, not necessarily employees. We're a membership organisation. If you weren't a member of ours and you came to us, are we going to spend a lot of time on you? Of course we're not. Mm. If there's an employee who's significantly being um, Um. exploited and they come to us, we will show them where they can get the information they need and we'll we'll assist them. Uh, But we... You know, we're a membership organisation for for employers. Yep. So sorry.
2: I think sorry,
0: Sorry, you th- hang on, Joe. Go ahead, Joe.
1: Sorry, just on that though, there is an unfortunate situation though where. In the nature of a lot of these people that are working for these companies that we see zombie EBAs, where you direct them to where they go, they're aware of what they should do, but they're scared if they say something, they will not have work. Um, now, you can explain to them until you're blue in the face that... If that company's not doing it, another company will do it. There is an award in plus and a minimum wage that is expected to be paid. But the nature of the people that you're doing it are concerned that they're just not going to get the work, so they will continue to work for lesser money.
2: So okay. I think, look, um, I think we've pivoted a little bit, but I will say that I I won't participate in a conversation that say that say says that there is a problem overall with enterprise bargaining. I've always bargained with um, our organisation and successfully done so. I don't see that that's a, a, f- a fair position to say that. The the instrument itself is the problem. Um, Indeed, it is uh, flexibility in enterprise is an excellent thing, um, and that is why the award itself has flexibility provisions within it. It's just a different way of doing the same thing. The conversation should be around whether people are playing their legal entitlements. And when it comes to the issues of uh, pricing in our industry, it's not necessarily the employer that has that instrument in place, or the large employer or the small employer, it's about those that either don't have one and are paying anything they want, mm. about those that are paying cash in hand and continue to do so, and about those that are subcontracting down deliberately and knowingly to achieve a cheap price that they can't employ people with themselves, that are the key reasons why we have price, not because there's an instrument that it provides flexibility to some enterprises that can use that. Sure. And okay. in terms of informing employer employees, there is a legal obligation for every employer to provide a fair work statement, which now has a different name to every individual, and you can be prosecuted for not doing so. It provides all the information for the individual yep. to make informed des- decisions. And from a security trainer's perspective, whenever we deliver the licensing course, we make sure that content is distributed as part of new industry entrants so that there's no excuse for them not knowing what they should receive when they're part of the industry so it's all of those touch points that i think that contribute to improving where we can be in the future um, but but just saying that uh, you know enterprise um, bargaining issues and old ebas are the problem for low pricing i think um one there's not that many of them um yep. and and two um flexibility uh, comes in many different forms yep. yeah
0: i i don't think anyone's suggesting that ebas are the problem we're just saying that there are instances of older EBAs out there that are perhaps outdated that are being used as a loophole in certain circumstances to allow people to maybe skirt the or, the legal or issues. Or being abused. Yeah,
3: there's nothing wrong with EBAs.
0: No, it, it it's more just like anything. There's nothing wrong with the EBA. It's how people use it.
3: And Lenny touched on uh, quite a number of the of, of the points that are that are valid. The Fair Work Information Statement is, is part of the National Employment Standards. Everybody should be told what they are when they're employed. Uh, the use of ABN holders, huge problem in our industry. Probably the biggest problem of all is sham subcontracting. Um, not, pay, not being registered, not being a, a licensed provider but still doing it. Paying cash in hand, they're the issues, certainly not EBAs. Buying, an EBA, buying a company to buy its EBA is unlawful, there's no question about that. But, the, but Lenny's right, the bigger issues, much bigger issues, are ABN holders and just straight out unlawful underpayment of wages, just people who are shonky.
0: Okay, so we're obviously not going to solve those problems in a you know, one hour podcast as much as I might like to think <laughs> we're that wonderful, but I mean, how, what, what can be done to tackle some of these issues?
3: A lot of it's education, you know. A lot of it is education. You know, again, Lenny Lenny mentioned that when they when they do uh, training, uh, they provide some education to the individual who's entering the industry, and you know, it should be part of the, the training of any individual. It should be part of induction. Uh, everybody should have a contract of employment that tells them what their what their uh, award is. Uh, what expectations they have uh, and give them access to the award. Everybody's supposed to have access to an award when they, when they join a, a company. Uh, how we get people to do it, how we get those people who deliberately go about avoiding uh, telling people what their rights are in the system um, is... I'm not going to say it's not a matter for ASIAL to do, I think we play a very strong part in that, much stronger than we should as an, in, as a, an employer organisation. Um, you know, most of what we've done with the Fair Work Ombudsman is what we would have expected United Voice to do as a union. But, uh, but we believe that if employees are paid correctly and everybody does the right thing in terms of their obligations towards employees, then we can lift the professionalism and force that price that we that we've been talking about so much uh, with with our clients sure. so i don't know what the answer is i mean i've been i've spent 20 years trying to 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 solve that particular problem i think part of it is part of the problem is that we're an entry level industry Joe mentioned that people don't complain to the Fair Work Ombudsman or other organisations that they're being underpaid wages. They're frightened of losing their jobs. Um,
2: I think, look, I I agree that we're not going to change the position. The industry's been talking about it forever and and there isn't significant improvement. Coming back to the procurement practices, however, there has been certainly a shift on paper as a result of um, the local government um, initiative. Um, Certainly in New South Wales, Um, which has always been a little bit behind some of the other states, Um, there is uh, an increasing requirement um, to demonstrate on paper um, at the point of responding to a tender from local government that you have met all your obligations as a legal employer. So they've started incorporating all the right clauses and all the right content into the procurement documents. Um, So some of that education has stuck in that particular area. Um, It would be great to see that move on to, you know the industry more broadly um, into other levels of government, um, not just in in local government. Um, But the next step um, I think uh, Chris would support is it's great to see them asking for it. It's time for them to start actually asking you to prove it. Prove it. Yeah, Yeah. the
3: the audit process. (laughs) Look, uh, and I'll give you an example. I probably shouldn't give this example publicly, but I was in another state recently and I was talking to the Minister for Local Government and mentioned the LGPI, and we'd given them a copy of it before we went there. Uh, And that minister said, this doesn't apply to us. This is federal legislation, it's not state legislation. We talked about uh, uh, Section 550 of the Fair Work Act. So I think we did make some inroads with the local government procurement initiative, and the second stage was supposed to be that it would roll out to state government. And then move on. I don't know that we'll ever get to the second stage, but we'll try. Um, but what, what Lenny has said is absolutely right. That we've got to go beyond that question, are you doing the right thing? And then go to the next question, which is, show me, prove yeah. it. Sure. Because anybody's going to tick the box. Joe, are
0: you going to solve the problems of the world for us? Are you going to tell us how we can fix procurement?
1: I've been at it for 24 years, so I'm going to have to say no, sorry.
0: Oh, well, at least we tried. Um, all right. Well, and we've we, got to keep trying. We, and that's the key, to keep trying. Yes. Yep, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure having you here, Lenny, Joe, Chris. Thank you. And uh, of course, if you've been listening to this and you'd like to catch the previous podcast in which we discussed this from a uh, a supply chain management point of view, you can find the ASIO podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, uh, in the Android Google Play store and any other place that you find good podcasts because we're a wonderful podcast. And uh, we look forward to having you again on the next podcast with us. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.